Why don't we start by reading, we're going to read verses uh, 34 through the end of chapter 10, and we'll pause there before we pick up in 11 to finish our time. So, verse 34. This is God's word, Acts chapter 10, verse 34. This is what God says. says, So Peter opened his mouth in light of the invitation from Cornelius and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. All right. So the Gentiles receive good news and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of what happens in this moment. It's profoundly earth-shattering, particularly for a Jewish person. So God has revealed to Peter through his vision, now his interaction with Cornelius, that God does not discriminate between people. And so you can kind of envision Peter's journey through the ups and downs, a little bit unsure initially, like, I can't do what you're asking me to do. God repeats it three times, go kill and eat. He later understands that that vision of the sheet and the animals was representative of people that God was collecting in this sheet for heaven, for himself, people from all over the place, so every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and what God has deemed clean is clean indeed. So now he's, he's reached the point where he walks into this room and he's like, now I understand. I, I understand that God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't make distinction between Jew and Gentile. And he makes this interesting statement. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So this isn't some sort of uh, infusion of works-based religion works-based theology into this moment. He seems to be kind of referring and hearkening back to Cornelius. You remember last week, one of the most commendable descriptions of really any man in the Bible is given to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. He wasn't a Christian. He feared God. He was generous. He prayed all the time. He was a good guy. He was religiously zealous. He was a God-fearer. But yet it wasn't enough to 
to save him. And so Peter seems to be kind of bringing light to the fact that in all of Cornelius' earnest religious activity, God said earlier in the story that it had risen up like a memorial before God, that God showed particular favor to Cornelius, even by way of his religious zeal that could never fully rescue him, but God graciously dipped down to show him more of himself as a man, and ultimately he comes to faith here in this story. But those religious pursuits weren't enough to save Cornelius. He sends a message through a messenger, and that's God's pattern throughout all of history. still the same today. God sends his message through messengers to testify about the work and the person of Jesus. In verse 36, Peter goes on to begin to develop this sermon. He preaches a sermon a lot like, in many ways, his previous sermons in the first part of Acts, where many respond in faith. In verse 36, says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of all. There's, there's been whispers of this unique one, like since the beginning of time. In the garden, there's someone, there's a seed that's going to come, a unique descendant who's going to put to death the strife that exists between God and man. And that's the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would rescue God's people. And Peter's drawn attention to the fact that this good news of a rescuer is, is found in, it's fulfilled in Jesus. He's the Lord of all. He says in verse 37, you yourselves know, he kind of appeals to like, hey, you've heard about it. Like, you know all the things that Jesus has been doing across the land. You know, you know what's happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus is this anointed Prince of Peace. And so, picture this. There's a point in time, and look back in chapter 4 of the book of Luke. We'll have it up here. So there's a moment in Jesus' ministry. He walks back into his hometown in Nazareth. He steps into the synagogue, which was almost always his pattern. He would go into the synagogue. He would read from the Old Testament. He picks up Isaiah chapter 61, and he unrolls it, and he reads this section from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this, he rolls it back up, gives it to the attendant, and he sits down, and everybody's just waiting to see what he's going to say next. And here's what he says. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. Jesus is the one that has been spoken of for centuries. He is the, the prince of peace, he is the good news. He's the one that comes to bring liberty to captives, to set those who are bound free, to bring God's favor upon the world. And so all of those promises in Isaiah and otherwise are fulfilled in Jesus. And so here's one thing that I would observe just from Peter's sermon, is that Jesus did all sorts of good things. He did good deeds. He did miracles. But even more so, he brought good news we talked about this when we looked at the, the miracles to Aeneas and Tabitha, you might remember. So in those two miracles, one of the things we observed is the fact that those miracles can't save anyone. You might look at a miracle and be like, that's a legitimate work of God. But the miracle by itself doesn't rescue anyone from their sin. It's just a signpost. 
this kind of flash in the night to drive people to where the light is coming from, where life is found. And so in a similar way, we look at Jesus' life, and you could say it this way, Jesus' miracles are not the good news of the gospel. That's not the, that's not the good news that saves anyone. The good news isn't merely that Jesus did good in the land. And so let me just model this in a conversation. It can be tempting at times. Maybe you've done this. Pretty sure at some points I probably have. We can have a conversation with someone about Jesus, about things that are true in the gospel. And it might go something like this, potentially. Hey, did you know that Jesus accomplished miracles? Like he walked on water. He turned water into wine. There was one time where Jesus healed a woman just because she touched the hem of his garment. He healed blind people. He made lame men walk. It's amazing. Jesus can do anything. Period. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't say those things, but hearing that Jesus accomplished miracles doesn't save anyone. It's only a pathway to lead to the fact that Jesus is unique, but he did much more than do good works. He brought good news And to hear good news means that there's some sort of bad news that he fixed. And that's ultimately where Peter goes. Jesus is the long-awaited Prince of Peace. He's the only way to attain peace with God. That's the good news of the Bible. Human beings are at odds with God because of our sin. And we can only be reconciled through Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. So Peter says we're witnesses of all that he did. We saw everything too. We saw it plainer than anyone. We sat and ate with him after he rose from the grave and and the apostles appealed to the witnesses and and, and being those who were with Christ after he rose from the grave. And then they go, he launches into this, what I would call kind of the meat of the gospel presentation that I think is really helpful for us to see. Go to verse 30, second half of verse 39. He says, we're witnesses. And then the second half, he says, they put him, Jesus, to death by hanging him on a tree. So this notion of a tree, Peter didn't have to say he hung on a tree, but it's an allusion to something that was known in Jewish culture in the Old Testament primarily that's referred to in the book of Galatians. And the the summary is this in Galatians 3, 13 through 14, is that everyone who relies on the law to make themselves right with God and everyone who has broken the law is under a curse. That's true of every single person in this room. Every single one of us have broken God's law, either by trying to use the law to attain righteousness or surely by breaking the law. Every single one of us, no exception. We've broken the law of God. And as a result, the Bible says we're under a curse. But Here's what happens in the book of Galatians, the way Paul talks about this to his Jewish audience largely. He says that Jesus freed us from the curse. And how did he do that? He became a curse for us. Every, every ounce of condemnation and guilt that we deserve because of our sinfulness and our sinning, Jesus became. He became a curse, and then Galatians 3 says this, because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree, meaning he became our curse. He was cursed on the tree in our place. So Peter says he hung on a tree, but he didn't stay there. Amen, right? So if, if Jesus stayed on the cross, or if he stayed in the grave, it's meaningless. It's just peculiar at best. Tragic. But it doesn't save anyone. But he didn't stay there. 
This is the rhythm of the preaching throughout the book of Acts, that he was killed, he was crucified, but God raised him up on the third day. He's risen, he's alive, and if he's alive, what it means is that what he did on the cross was sufficient, was acceptable to the Father. Jesus died not because he was a sinner, because he died in the place of sinners as a penalty bearer, and he rose to prove that he was God indeed. He rose from the grave, and he appeared to witnesses. And in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul talks about this. It became a little bit of like a creed for the early church, and he says it this way. He says, I deliver it to you. If you can envision me, just give me some grace. Envision me being Paul to you as the church in Corinth. And he says this. He says, I delivered to you, when I came to you, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. And this is what he says, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the issue of first importance. The gospel, Jesus died, he rose from the grave victorious, and he appeared to witnesses as alive from the dead. This, this is another thing that I'll share as well as I was praying through just the relevance of this, because this is, a, this is a, a sermon. It's kind of weird to preach a sermon on a sermon, but I think for believers, we have to like look at this and be like, what is significant about the way in which Peter lays out the gospel message? Here's part of it, is that Peter doesn't just tell his story about how he came to faith. He doesn't just give his testimony to the Gentile audience. His, his aim, his charge is to give a message that would lead Cornelius and his whole household to saving faith. So this is, the, this is the, the risk for us. I've done this before as well, is that it's not enough for us just to tell our personal story about what Jesus has done in our lives. It's important, and it can be a platform, but even that is a platform to lead, to call people to respond themselves to Jesus. My personal testimony isn't enough. And that's what happens in this moment. Peter gives the, the gospel. Jesus Christ died. He hung on a tree. He was cursed. And he became a curse. And then he rose from the grave. And he pushes kind of all the way to this moment, commending them to respond without saying the words respond or believe. And how does he do that? Well, he says that, that we were sent. We were given the responsibility to preach and to testify that Jesus reigns as the king and the judge of all men, the living and the dead. And that, in that moment, I would submit there's this confrontation with the human heart. Like it can't just be relegated to like, Peter's just giving us some good information about Jesus. He's saying, no, every single person has to respond to the work of Jesus Christ. He is the judge of everyone who's alive and everyone who's dead forever for all existence, for all eternity. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Uh, that's a culminating, I believe, statement. Even if it's silent, it's like, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? All the prophets bear witness to him. And I'll say it plainly this way as well, is that it's actually not good news that Jesus is our judge. It's not good news for the fallen human being to hear that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. It's only good news when you know that he who is a judge can simultaneously be your advocate and your mediator 
and plead your case. And the only one who can effectively bring you all the way into God's presence as acquitted of all your guilt. The gospel is a story of the judge leaving the bench and going to prison for those who are guilty. The gospel is a story, Andy Minio, a hip-hop artist, said it this way, it's a story of a hero dying for the villains. The gospel is a story of the shepherd dying for the straying sheep. That's the message of the gospel. And it demands a response from every single person on the planet because he's alive. If Jesus is alive, it demands a response from every single person. In verse 43, Peter says to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. They spoke of him from long ago that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so here's something I would say. is like, you might agree with Jesus. You might read through your Bible and be like, you know, I can, I can get down with that. That's, that's, I'm good with that. I'm good on Jesus. And <clears throat> you might agree with him. You might have respect and like esteem for Jesus. You might intellectually believe that he existed historically. But the question is, have you, have you put your belief upon him? Have you rested fully in his work? Have you trusted completely in him? Have you believed in him as, as the one who alone can provide your pardon from all of your guilt and all of your shame? Because Peter says, it's only those who believe that receive forgiveness of sins. Total debt removal. And this is a heavy area for preaching. It's a heavy area of the Bible. It's not particularly joyful to get up here and talk about the reality of heaven and hell, but it's necessary. Because here's the picture. As we think about Jesus becoming a curse, and as we think about believing in him that we might receive forgiveness, the reality is this, that law-breaking comes with a penalty. Every single one of us have broken God's law. And law-breaking comes with a penalty. If you don't believe that Jesus paid your penalty your penalty will still be paid. It has to be paid because God is a just and holy judge. So law breaking requires a penalty and a penalty has to be paid. And so here's the difference between those who trust in Christ and those who don't. Those who believe in Jesus and his work, our penalty is paid by Christ. And the picture of hell is this. Hell is the eternal place of debt payment for those who don't trust in Jesus. It's a place of ceaseless payment for all eternity for sin. And the, the miracle of what happened on the cross, someone once put it this way, is that in, in a matter of hours, as Jesus hung, as our substitute in our place, as our curse on the tree, that in a matter of hours, the Father exacted upon Jesus all of the wrath for my sin that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me. What an exchange! What a marvel of the mercy and the grace of God. He withholds from us what we deserve. That's mercy. And he actively gives us what we don't deserve. And that's grace. He makes us righteous. He gives us a foreign robe of righteousness all through faith in the work, the finished work of Jesus who paid our debt and our penalty fully. In verse 44, what happens here is that it seems like Peter, some would argue he got interrupted but he seems to, be, seems to be okay with the Holy Spirit interrupting his sermon in verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
and the believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish believers who came with him, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And this is like the, this is many things. One of the things it is, it's a formula for effective gospel preaching. When I'm talking about preaching, I'm not just talking about me being up here behind a podium preaching God's word to you. This is a, a formula for effective preaching for every witness, all of us, collectively, individually, preaching Jesus to the world around us. And it's essentially this, as we speak the truth clearly about Jesus, that we let it out. He died, he rose, he paid our debt, and he's now reigning as the judge of the living and the dead. We, we speak the truth, we speak it clearly, and we commend people to respond in belief. And then what do we do? Ultimately, we have to wait for God to work, for the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. We can't change human hearts. What we're called to do is be faithful witnesses, to boldly proclaim the truth that every single man and woman and child on this planet has to respond to the work of Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? And it's our responsibility to give that away. In this moment where the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, such a, like, uh, we don't really feel the magnitude of this because we just, quite honestly, we're, we're not Jewish in this day. We don't feel the, the chasm between Jew and Gentile, but I'll endeavor to try to poke into that realm just a little bit. Like, this is a remarkable and an important kind of commonality between what happened at Pentecost and the beginning of Acts. You might remember, like Jesus promised, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. And what happens? The Spirit comes upon the church in power. People start speaking in foreign languages, preaching the gospel, the good news, the works of God in tongues that are foreign to them. And thousands of people come to faith. And what happens now? We have a miniature Gentile Pentecost. Peter's preaching, while he's preaching, the Spirit of God falls upon this Gentile audience and they start doing the same thing. They start speaking in foreign languages, glorifying God, and people are amazed. And So just in case we were to question whether or not Jews or Gentiles were on the same footing or those present would question that, this moment is a, a clarion display of the fact that both Jew and Gentile are part of the same family, saved by the same work, sealed by the same spirit. It seems like that's some of the reason why these events are remarkably similar. But these Jewish Christians were amazed. God wasn't discriminating. He wasn't distinguishing between Jew and Gentile. The same spirit that fell upon the Jews now has fallen upon the Gentiles. And here's what's crazy about this for if you're a Jewish person. If you can go back a little bit into Old Testament, if you're with us through the book of Exodus, even journeying through Ephesians a little bit, is that the, the tabernacle and the temple were, were this temporary structure where the presence of God resided with his people. You might remember that. The, the glory of God, the presence of God, tangibly felt amongst his people, dwelling with his people in this tent or in this more permanent structure, the temple. So what happens in the New Testament? That Christians now become what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Those things were just temporary pictures of the permanent display of the presence of God within his people. Now here's what's unique about this. Prior to this moment, in the midst of the, the temple interactions for Jews, Gentiles couldn't get all the way into the presence of God. They had this special outer court, and they were limited to there to go and offer prayers. But they couldn't get all the way 
into the presence of God. There was a visible, notable distinction that kept Gentiles from being in the presence of God fully. But what do we see here? The presence of God falls and goes within Gentiles, unthinkable to a Jewish person. No wonder they were amazed. Like, I can't believe that the Spirit of God has fallen upon even the Gentiles. The Gentiles who were previously unable to fully be in the presence of God are now temples for the presence of God. So Peter's declaration in verse 47 is, who can withhold water for these people to be baptized? Let's give them a chance to respond in obedience and faith. And now they've been made a part of the family of God through the Spirit, through his eternal family. Let's make them a part of the church, local, through baptism. It seems to be kind of the, the picture. Just like he did after Pentecost when people asked how she, they should respond, he says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so they are. But now what we see in chapter 11 is not everybody was excited about this work. There was hesitance, hesitancy still present in the church and the new family of God. Let's, let's go to chapter 11. We'll kind of finish with this section. It says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Jewish believers, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So we'll pause there. So he goes back to the church in Jerusalem. They're like, hey, we heard about what's going on with the Gentiles. I can't believe you spent time with and ate with Gentiles. So he's like, all right, let me share this story. And so what happens in verses 5 through 14 is Peter kind of goes back through the story. Here's the vision that happened for Cornelius and for me. Here's our interaction when I met him. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. See, the language was similar. It was the same type of work done. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So pause real quickly. Like one really important thing here that I would observe just from Peter's response. This moment was remarkably confusing for a Jewish person. Peter has had the, the time over at least a few days to kind of gather himself to realize that God is doing something. He said the Gentiles are included in this thing, and I shouldn't make a distinction. This is still really difficult to grasp. It's a difficult moment. So here's, here's the one thing I want to observe. is what he does in verse 16. It says the Holy Spirit fell in verse 15, and he says what? He says, I remember the word of God. He says, I remember Jesus said something about this that is relevant to, it helps me interpret my experience as he talks about the way Jesus spoke of the baptism of water with John, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so why am I bringing this up? It's because we should endeavor to be just like this in this way, interpret our life, our experience, particularly those things that are confusing through the lens of the word of God. Ah, I, rem I remember God's word says something about this. And that becomes the lens through which we interpret our situations, our circumstances, our pain, our confusion, our life in general, but not the other way around. We don't interpret scripture through our circumstance, or our feelings, or our emotions, or difficulty, 
but God's word is the filter through which and the lens through which we interpret life. I remember that God's word said something here. And that's where I'm gonna go to interpret my experience and give me confidence in the moment. In verse 17, he says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, this is a wise statement from Peter, who is I that I could stand in God's way? God is gonna do it. Who am I to stand in his way? And in verse 18, much like any opponent to the work of God, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And I, I love just the, the tone of this moment because I can see this group being like, well, then I, I guess God really has done something unique. Like he really has granted his spirit to these people to lead them to life. It seems a little bit like they're just like, well, okay. <laughs> Can't argue with what you just shared. God's spirit fell, given to them just like us, then you're right. God really is able to save the people that we never thought would be a part of our family. He's able to do that. I just wonder if for some of us, and I pray that for, for us, that we'd have those same moments. The people, the individuals in our life or categories of people that we're resistant to or that maybe we just can't see as ever surrendering to Jesus, that we'd have these moments where we'd be like, well, look at that. I guess God really is able to save anyone and make them a part of his family through his spirit and lead them to repentance that leads to life. It's a really sweet, honest moment. Let me leave you with just three really brief kind of pastoral thoughts for us as we think about this story. Again, as we fight in these, in these stories, to not just see them as stories of a moment that once was, about people who once were, we try to really push them into our hearts and our lives. And there's three things that I would say that kind of connect some themes of the whole story from the beginning of chapter 10 to, to the middle of chapter 11. The first is this. I think we'll have it up here. Is go to them, don't hesitate. This, this is essentially, you could say, God's response to the hesitation primarily of Peter along the way as he's do, unfolding this work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. You might remember Initial hesitation about the foods, but then these three guys come and God preemptively says, don't hesitate. Don't make a distinction between you and them. Go to them. I've sent them to you. And I think, I think we need to hear that. I asked the question last week, who are your Gentiles? For you. Who are the people in your life, the individuals in your life that you're resistant to, confused by, intimidated by, you just can't quite see them ever being responsive to you, much less to Christ. Go. Like, don't hesitate. Go to them. God, God hasn't made any distinction in this world between Jew and Gentile based on any ethnicity or socioeconomic status. Is, is be faithful to go. Don't hesitate. The second encouragement would be this. Invite them in. Your hospitality is a reflection of gospel inclusion. You see this throughout this story. You know, Peter stays with Simon the Tanner. Then he invites these three guys in when they come and they have this awkward overnight thing that I'm sure was really confusing. Like, what do we do? Like, we don't share anything in common, but here we are. We're together and then they journey together the next day. And then they, they come into Cornelius' house and there's just this expression of what I would submit at least there's a whisper of hospitality 
as a reflection of gospel inclusion that every single person, man, woman, and child across the globe, people from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation are included in the family of God and should be included at our table as well as individual believers. But invite them in. And I think one of the things we see with Peter is that his vision allowed him to overcome his discomfort. Whatever discomfort he might have felt, which is kind of conjecture on my part, how Peter felt when he was at the table with four Gentiles, I'm going to assume he was a little bit uncomfortable because I'm going to also assume he had never done it before. And in that moment, what allowed him to overcome his discomfort, to take the gospel to these individuals? It was his vision, his vision from God. Now, we may not have dreams and visions, but we have this one. We have God's word made more sure than any vision that we could ever have. And the, the commendation from God's word is, is go. Invite them in. Bring them in. Bind them up. Give them clothes. Give them food. Bring them into your table. Because the extent we did to the least of these, right? We did it unto Jesus in our lives, right? That hospitality is a reflection of gospel inclusion in the family of God. And lastly, maybe not surprisingly, is open your mouth. Open your mouth. We see in Peter this just beautiful example of preaching the gospel, not just giving testimony, as good as that is, not just talking about the good works that Jesus did, as important as that is, but both of those things leading as signposts to the one ultimately who can save every person on the globe. That we can look at people and open our mouth and say, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? You have to do something with Christ. Will you believe in him? And so I pray that we more and more would have those type of moments in our lives. Let's pray to that end. We'll sing one last song as we close off. God, we need your help to be faithful and bold uh, we are not courageous left to ourselves, but you are worth it. Uh, you have purchased us, um, Jesus, by your own blood, and our lives are no longer our own. So whatever the cost, whatever the discomfort to us, interpersonally or otherwise, I pray that we'd be willing to take up our cross and follow you. Because you said, Jesus, that anyone who desires to save his life will lose it. But those who lose their lives for your sake and for the gospels will, will truly find it. Would you help us to find our life by losing it for you? Um, help us to be men and women who go without hesitation to people of every color and ethnicity and place of life and socioeconomic status, people that don't look like us, those who don't think like us even, as you send them our way, as it were, that we would be faithful to go and not make distinction, that we'd invite them in to be a part of our table, um, that we'd practice ordinary hospitality as a reflection of gospel inclusion in the family of God, and then ultimately we'd speak clearly, boldly, consistently about the work of Christ and commend people to believe and would you save people would you rescue people from darkness bring them into your light by the faithfulness of your people to be witnesses in this place in this season this city to those around us we love you we thank you for what you've done to make us a part of your family and we worship you what can we do but sing your praises Lord
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand together. We'll sing one last song.